The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She was born the daughter of a famous Mesopotamian king, and she became a high priestess living in the Sumerian city-state of Ur. One of her tasks was to write temple hymns, or at least assemble them in some form, and she wrote some original poetry as well. She also is the first poet known to have ascribed her own name to her works, and as such, she can stand as history's first known poet. Her name was Enidwana, and she lived more than 4,000 years ago. But who was this remarkable figure? What do we know about her, and how much value do her poems have for us today? We'll be joined today by Charles Halton, an expert in ancient civilizations and theology, to help us answer these questions. And Edwana, today, on the History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson and Edwana, one of literary history's great forgotten names. A very early poet, which is remarkable. We are going way back here, people. Reaching back to that time when the Fertile Crescent was the site of some great changes, transitions in how human beings lived and interacted with one another. Cities were forming, and with them brought new ways of living and new kinds of thought. We also have early writing, which helps us bring these ancient figures out of the mists of time and into something closer to what we can recognize as a living, breathing, and thinking human being. I can't wait to see what Charles has for us today. Okay, so let's get right to it. I've got a bunch of emails saved up, but I want to postpone all those for now. I do want to say that we're kicking off another theme month with this episode. I don't have a great title for these yet. Thursday Themes. Is that what we should call this? I think I previewed October for you already, where we're going to dive into Edgar Allan Poe a bit. That should be fun. And we started this in August with our look at five of the most famous Shakespearean sonnets. If you have an idea for a theme, let me know. You can shoot me an email or tweet it at me or Mike 
either at the Jack Wilson or at Literature SC. Mike doesn't really have anything to do with the themes, actually, but he tends to respond a little more than I do, or he forwards things, and for some reason, the gods of Twitter make sure that I see them when Mike is involved. Mike is involved with our David Foster Wallace efforts here at the History of Literature, and he's told me that the episode on Infinite Jest is forthcoming, hopefully soon. People, for those of you who've been looking forward to that, you can enjoy hearing Mike's thoughts about DFW and I can enjoy a little bit of a breather. Speaking of breather, let's take a quick breath. Oh, wait. Can't do that yet. I haven't even told you about this month's theme. Forgotten Women of Literature. How about that? We're going to need multiple months to cover a topic like that. That's an endless theme. <laughs> We're not going to run out of themes when we have that. We could do a part two, part three, part four, and we won't even be scratching the surface. But I'm so glad we can... Go all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia for our first one. There were forgotten women from, well, maybe we should divide literary history into pre-Virginia Woolf and post-Virginia Woolf. There really, after Virginia Woolf, there really is no reason for women writers to be unfairly forgotten. That's on us. Maybe you could plead ignorance prior to then, but you really can't after Woolf's essays, can you? So that's kind of depressing when we have recent forgotten women of literature. It says something about society and the way it hasn't changed, maybe the way it should have changed after Virginia Woolf. We will have at least one forgotten woman from the post-Woolf era. We'll include that this month, just so we can take a look. And yet, where am I going with this? I have to say it's kind of a glass half full or half-empty situation here with a figure like Enidwana. I'm inspired by Enidwana being right there at the very start of poetry, extant poetry, poetry that exists, poetry that survived, or at least extant attributed poetry, someone with a name, a historical name being attached to the lines. It shows us that women were involved in literature for as long as known literature existed. That's a glass half full. They were there. They contributed. I'm sure there are plenty of other periods of time, stretches in history, where they were not allowed. They were not permitted to be literate. They were not valued. Their contributions were not preserved. I'm sure that's true, but... If we're looking at the oldest, there she was, Anandwana. That's inspiring. That's something there. To know that they're there for us to discover and read and try to understand and to celebrate even today. We have some great examples of forgotten women of literature. I have my four for this month already picked out. The glass half empty way of looking at this is to say we have thousands of years of women being overlooked. It's obviously not good. Well, we're not going to solve that problem today, but this podcast is here to do its part. We can't erase 4,000 years of erasing, but we can draw a little figure on the big white blank page. I'm not much of an artist, but I can make a stick figure or two, and today we have a guest who can do a much better sketch than that. Let's take a quick break and come back with Charles Halton and our subject for today, Anandwana. 
Okay, joining me now is Charles Halton, who specializes in theology and ancient civilizations, including our topic of today, Mesopotamia and the writings of poet Enedwana. Charles Halton, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Is it Enedwana? Is that how you pronounce it? Enedwana is typically how it's pronounced, but as with most things in ancient languages, it's sort of an approximation. Ah, okay, got it. So, okay, now before we travel back thousands of years, let's just travel back a decade or two and find out how you got started in this field. What first aroused your interest? Well, I first was interested in the Hebrew Bible mm -hmm. and the kind of Levantine religions, and I was applying to different PhD schools and stuff like that. And I got into a school, Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, that specialized in um, Mesopotamia and cuneiform languages. And mm -hmm. so I felt that, you know, I would just go with the thing that they'd really built a good reputation behind. And then I ended up really loving it and enjoying it and finding it tremendously fascinating. Mm. And what fascinates you about this period in particular? Well, it's some of the very first writers ever mm. in the history of the world mm. and first steps toward more complex civilizations and um, more complex urban life. And there are all these thoughts and philosophies that um, start trading between cultures. Mm. Well, mm -hmm. Really fascinating that even 5,000 years ago, these cultures were in contact with one another, and even over you know a thousand mile distance. And I had before then just kind of thought there were all these isolated backwater places that had no contact, and certainly that was the case for many you know villages. You could go your entire life and not talk to somebody over the next hill, but there was a lot of contact through trade, through diplomatic overtures. And so it's really interesting to see the flow of ideas between peoples. Mm. I also, when I read the Epic of Gilgamesh, and I traced this in the episode I did on, on Gilgamesh, and I wonder if this is something you found to be true as well. I found it extremely liberating to be uh, before the Bible, that yeah. so much of what we take for granted is just part of our 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 thought process or or the way we analyze things comes from the Bible, uh, whether we're religious or not. It just seemed like when you go to a pre-biblical world, you really kind of see humanity in a different way than you do when you have uh, all of the authors who would be influenced in some way or another by the Bible. Yes, absolutely. And what's really fascinating to me is that in looking at some of these Mesopotamian cultures, it really reframed even my approach to the Bible, because mm. I see it now as a much more Asian-directed um, document than mm -hmm. Western. And so Mesopotamia is right there, kind of in the middle, is this bridge between the East and West. And I really think that, to a large degree, some of these divisions that we have in our mind between Western thought and Eastern thought, when we kind of go back earlier, we see that they're not as different as maybe I had originally thought. Mm, yeah. And a lot of the things that I thought originated in like ancient um, Athens and Rome and stuff like that 
really is for as far as like structure of government and um, philosophical observations, a lot of that stuff was going on hundreds of years before then. Yeah. As well. So a lot of these cultures were mixing and sharing. And as historians, it's sometimes, you know, people often like to be the first, you know, or we like to pinpoint what the first time something ever happened was. Yeah. And I think the more we study, the more we see it's really hard to discern an actual first. It's just human beings were interacting and developing and in a constant state of change. And um, mm-hmm. I find fascinating. Mm. And that's one of the things I want to uh, get to when we start talking about Anadwana is when we ascribe a first to someone, is that because we know that the person was actually the first or because it's the first one that we have that survived, the oldest version of something we have? Right, exactly. It's definitely the latter. So when we look at ancient texts, particularly in the period of Mesopotamia, which is from roughly 3300 B.C., up until roughly 500 BCE, something like that, we, do, we don't have a complete knowledge of the texts that were around back then. Mm. We know of some of the prominent texts, and um, scribal schools would kind of write down curricula for people, and they would name some of the prominent texts that mm. students mm-hmm. would have to learn. But we assume that there were many others that never made it onto those lists, and much of those I think are just lost to history, um, likely forever. Some of them we'll probably find along the way, but it's almost like when we get into the ancient world, as far as the textual record goes, it's like we're in a basketball arena with all the lights turned out Mm. and somebody, you know, and a few people have flashlights and they shine the flashlights on various portions of the court. And we can see those parts, but then all of the rest of the court is kind of dark. Mm. And that's the way it is with a lot of these texts. If we find like a library that burned down in in antiquity and was kind of covered over with rubble and it survived, you know, we have a picture of maybe the text around in that one city in that one time period, but we might have to wait 400 more years until we find another site like that in a different city far away. Yeah. So. Uh, it's so interesting. And it's just interesting to think what it would be like if someone were, you know, thousands of years from now looking at our era and right. saying something like, oh, you know, here's here's a, a novel by the amazing, you know, so-and-so, and then just wondering, um, you know, but boy, they they seem to talk about these novels by Leo Tolstoy quite a bit. And, and there was this guy, Proust, if only we had that version, you know, something like that. They might be looking at a, a dime store novel and thinking uh, how miraculous it is when actually we wouldn't even consider that to be, uh, you know, in our top 100 of the greatest novels. Oh, for sure. And a lot of times the reason why we find text is because they've essentially wound up in the trash where people were on a building project and they were kind of, you know, building a foundation for a new house or whatever. And they just found a bunch of clay tablets or lying around and kind of dumped them in the, in a pit to like right. fill up the ground. And then we find that <laughs> like, Oh my gosh, this incredible text. They must've revered, you know, it is like, well, they're just kind of dumping that. So, yeah. 
Right. Okay. So let's move towards Anadwana. But I think first we have to talk a little bit about her father, who was, uh, my understanding is he was quite a figure in this era. And I kind of want to paint the scene a little bit for people who aren't as familiar with Mesopotamia and just the the society and, and the, the culture we're talking about and, and how they lived. So who was Anadwana's father and what kind of world did he live in? Well, Anedwana's father was this guy named Sargon, and he was a really famous guy. Um, he was Sargon I, because there were several other people later who took on his name and sort of mm. try to you know, lend power to themselves, almost like in France, you had all the Louis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Sargon was kind of like that, um, or kind of like William the Conqueror for England. He, he was a guy that made one of the first regional empires in the ancient world. So the way that societies were typically organized is folks would gather together at strategic areas, either on a river or where two different sort of topographical zones met. So maybe you have a forest that meets up with a marsh and then maybe a little ways away you have kind of a desert steppe or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so people would live in those places because they could get access to different sources of food in different times of the year. Mm. And so they would congregate together. And after some of these settlements became bigger and bigger, they started needing civic leadership. And so they would appoint people to be uh, the leader of their society. And different people had different ways that they did that. Most of these were not hereditary. They were just, um, you know, hey, you, you should you should lead us for the next few years. And then after that, we'll select somebody else. And then as these sort of settlements became bigger, they formed cities and the cities then spread their influence out. And so what you would normally have is a city center where people lived around a wall to protect themselves. And outside the city walls, you had agricultural fields and, um, you know, fishing zones and stuff like this. So people go out from the city and work in the fields and then come back in the city. And so the city influence kind of spread outside the walls in that area. And then sometimes you'd have disputes, you know, a city farther away would say, Hey, you're taking our timber. We don't like that or whatever. And cities would then fight and they didn't really have standing armies. And so they would just kind of call up the available males to form kind of ad hoc uh, militias as needed. And they would appoint a person who would lead that militia. And it was a specific time period. You know, it's just the person was leading for that particular crisis. Mm -hmm. After a while, that military leader gained a lot of power because he could say, hey, I'm commanding the military. Maybe, you know, I'm not just going to step down after this. Maybe I'll challenge this other um, city leader uh, for preeminence. And then over time, some of these cities started taking over other cities. And instead of just winning the battle, they would kind of occupy that territory and require mm. them to tribute. And so you get these city kind of alliances that were joined together by these generals. Um, and then Sargon came on the scene and basically joined together many of those kind of multi-city alliances mm. to form their own empire. And there were two main sectors of Mesopotamia that were the power centers when he arrived. There was a northern part of Mesopotamia where Sargon was from, and there was a southern part that kind of joined up 
with uh, the, the water. And the main, he took over first the northern part, and then he assimilated the cities of the southern part as well. He kind of joined this entire um, kingdom that stretched from kind of what is now the Kuwait area all the way up into Syria and um, kind of that area. Mm. So I have a question for you. Before we talk about Sargon, I just have a question about the cities and their formation. I think I always had in mind a, a view of all of these kind of independent actors who all got to make their own decisions and they would sort of decide it's going to be now that we have agriculture or now that we... Uh, there's going to be some advantage to me in joining this city. I want to be part of this. Either we're going to specialize or there'd be some economic benefit to me to uh, joining up with this city or I, I want the community or I believe in the common religion or, you know, whatever the, the reason for that. It was a bunch of individuals making this decision for themselves. And recently I read something that said we don't know exactly if that's how it worked or if it was more that they were coerced that the that the individuals were not necessarily making this choice for themselves but they were kind of being treated like property or slaves or or cattle or something and that it was a bunch of strong men who would say no we're going to make this a city because we need your labor here and uh you don't have a choice do you have a a sense of whether either of those is closer to the truth I think in general, the idea of individual choice that we take for granted in the modern world was not something that ancient people enjoyed or mm-hmm. even imagined. I think most people, you know, 99% of the choices of their life were made by the circumstances of life. Mm-hmm. And we didn't. Most people would be born into a city and they would die in that same city. And uh, most people, whatever their you know, it, it was a very gendered society, but we can get into this a little bit later. Some of that breaks down when you talk about class. But um, pretty much whatever your mom did, if you were uh, a woman, that's what you did. And then if you're, if you're a man, whatever your dad did, that's what you did in life. Mm. There wasn't a choice of like, I, I'm going to decide to, you know, make shoes today. You know, right. people right. didn't have that ability very much. I mean, occasionally it would happen, but most of the time it didn't. And, you know, marriages were arranged by your parents. And so this whole idea of kind of, you know, we go to the grocery store and choose between 10 different kinds of ketchup, you know, (laughs) it just didn't happen in the ancient world. Right. And, and when Sargon was uniting these communities, was that something he was uh, sort of a, a strategic thinker that everyone followed because his ideas made sense? Or was he a strong man who was running roughshod over the militaries of these towns and basically combining them in? Was he a, a power-hungry dictator type? Yeah, I, I would say it's more like that. You yeah. know, it, it, it was not a voluntary thing that people did. I mean, it, it, it sometimes it was a voluntary in the sense of they wanted to avoid physical punishment or, you know, pain. And so they would you know, pay tribute to somebody to avoid that. But it, it was, a, in a sense, like a mafia shakedown, you right. know. Uh, it'd be a shame if someone came along. Or, <laughs> but if you join right. up with me, I'll make sure you're okay. And you'll have to pay me for for that service. Right. That's the setup that it was. And so a guy like Sargon, by uniting all of those city-states together, you know, he was pulling in an immense amount of tribute per mm. year. 
became yeah. fabulously wealthy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people in the ancient world, I mean, I don't think, you know, we sort of have something similar with, you know, billionaires and things like this, and they have a wealth that is hard for us to imagine. But at the same time, we have TV shows that kind of show us that. And yeah. in the ancient world, I think it, it must have just been something folks couldn't comprehend. If you came from a small village where it's total subsistence living, where every season you're on the brink of death, literally, of starving to death, and then you walk into the royal city and there is a palace that is five stories high, has a garden suspended on the you know, third story. Mm. Uh, the, the king is eating meat every single meal, which, you know, People would only do that on feast days and on and on and on and on. You know, it would be something folks couldn't even comprehend. Yeah. And so and, that's the kind of lifestyle that Sargon had. And when those kings or rulers or priests would, would declare themselves gods, I think of it now as, well, the people w- would probably just roll their eyes and say, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but but maybe at the time it would be more like, uh, well, this person may be a divinity. They, they you know, you'd, you'd already have people who thought of them in that kind of uh, had the framework for thinking that of them. Yeah, typically in Mesopotamia, the kings didn't claim deity for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Egypt, they certainly did. But in Mesopotamia, often what would happen is after the king died, they would then um, kind of think of the king as occupying a similar position in the afterlife as he did on earth. And so they would say like he's this you know, semi-divine sort of kingly figure in the underworld or whatever. Mm. You know, there, I, I do think there was a diversity of belief back then. There is a really fascinating story from Greece a little bit after Mesopotamian period, but I think it illustrates something humorously that I think we should keep in mind. There was a court case of some youths who got, um, who were caught from, by the city elders of this city. And there was this Hermes statue that the Greeks would often put at crossroads because Hermes was kind of the the deity that oversaw message, you know, sending of messages and travel and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And Hermes had a phallus that was erect. And these youths went around knocking the phalluses off, these statues. And, uh, you know, I think for the youth to do that, it may have been just youthful fun, mm-hmm. but couldn't mm-hmm. have a healthy fear of the divine world and do that. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Like you had to think I can get away with this. Right. And so I do think there probably were people who had great reverence for Sargon and some of these other people. And there are probably a lot of people who regarded him like, you know, they were the mafia boss. They just couldn't say anything in public, but they thought he was scum. Right. Right. And so one more kind of background question before we pivot to Anadwana here. We're also, where are we in the history of writing? And I, my understanding is a lot of writing was important and even essential for maintaining this kind of an empire. And I can see where the, the either the taxation or the, you know, the uh, storage of grain and, and things like that would be benefited from uh, having this written language. But do we also see, uh, how old is writing at this point? How many people are literate? And do we do we see a written literature that's widespread with myths or hymns or poetry or anything? Yeah. So what we would consider actual writing probably arose somewhere around 3,300 to 3,200 BCE. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was 
uh, accounting systems that were around before then. And so they, those first started off as like tokens where you maybe have a clay ball that symbolized a sheep. You have another sh- shape that symbolized some other animal. And they would collect those as they were buying and selling animals and trade them and stuff like this. And, and then those tokens were then represented on like a flat surface, like a clay tablet. Mm. But that was really just an accounting ledger. And that happened for a while. But language, uh, I would define that as um, a system of signs that represents speech, um, not just mathematical tabulations. Right. If we're talking about representation of speech, you know, that was somewhere around 2500 BCE, something like that. And the very first instances of things like that were more like uh, votive objects that you'd give to a temple. So, mm. you know, if you if if the king donated a fancy lampstand to the temple, a scribe may write on it a little message, making sure the gods knew the king is the one who gave this, you know, mm-hmm. so credit. Um, and then expanded out from that to to kind of the scribes would write these, you know, stories about how great the king was. Because most of the scribes were paid by the king to begin with. Right. Um, so they'd be listing ladder- out accomplishments and, and right, these exactly. are the cities and the, this is the... The uh, I don't know the what else would they have the the ancestors and the ancestral line and and here's what the sure. king has done here's who they conquered here's here are the cities they preside over yeah exactly and um, some of them were year names like even for accounting you would have a year name assigned mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. transaction and a lot of these year names were actually sentences that described this is the year the king built his really awesome palace you know or this is the year the king defeated all of those tribes of people or something and that would be the actual year name so that 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 would in my mind that's an instance of uh, language because you are representing uh, ideas and speech and things right okay and so we come to sargon's daughter uh who was she and how does she fit into this story yeah, well, so she was uh, the daughter of King Sargon, this emperor. Um, she really gained prominence after Sargon. Um, again, he was born in kind of this northern part of Mesopotamia, and he united that region together militarily. And then he came down into the south and started through confrontation and threats um, uniting that area and assimilating it into his empire. And as he did that, there was a linguistic difference between the North and the South. The South uh, kind of spoke this language called Sumerian, which is one of the very first languages that we know of in the world. And uh, Sargon, though, spoke a language called Akkadian, which was a Mm. Semitic language, Mm -hmm. you know, related later to Arabic and Hebrew and things like that. And so when Sargon conquered the South, he imposed his own language onto that area and made Akkadian the official language um, where it used to be Sumerian. And that caused a huge amount of um, anger, uh, unrest, because even in nowadays is the UN defies, defines uh, genocide. You know, one of the things that goes into that calculation is, are we obliterating a person's culture? And language is part of that. And as we've seen in history, if you want to er just wipe a 
people off the face of the earth, you can do that by killing them physically, or you can eradicate their culture. And one of the ways you do that is to make their language go extinct. Mm. And so that was the situation that was happening at that time. And so he backed off from that a little bit. And, you know, he kind of, I think, saw a civil war that was brewing mm. and tried to make some effort, at least address to show that, uh, you know, wasn't going to be that big of a tyrant. Mm-hmm. And so he sent his daughter down to one of the most prominent temples of the South in a city called Ur. And he installed her as the uh, priestess, high priestess of that temple. Mm. And so that was his symbolic move of showing, okay, I'm sending my daughter down to you guys to uh, be a patron of your religion and your culture and things like that. And so what she did when she arrived is apparently she kind of aided in her father's effort of propaganda and mollification of this conquered people. And she assembled together a hymn book. Uh, And she also did some other compositions as well. But she assembled a hymn book of about 52 hymns. Each of the hymns were dedicated to a different temple in Sargon's empire. And these temples were both from the south and from the north. And so I think what she was trying to communicate is that this this idea that, that this is now a new country that's united together in common culture and religion and observance, both north and south. Mm. And what language did she choose to write these in? She, her her name was a kind of Sumerian name, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of these were Sumerian. So what happened was Sumerian then became kind of like the Latin mm. Um, mm-hmm. of the medieval period, where it was like a scholarly language, you know, or a language of the church. And even today, you know, Vatican City still kind of does official stuff in Latin. Right. It, it was something kind of like that. So she maybe maybe she grew up with Akkadian as her first language, but she was uh, as part of this bridge to the trying to unify these uh, cities in the south. She was willing to uh, write these hymns in Sumerian. Yeah, and I mean in writing, we need to have a flexible term with that. You know, uh, it probably at least for for this temple hymn thing, it was probably more of an editing job. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, so she kind of collected together these existing hymns that were already floating around, and um, and then but she put her name onto it, and that's the huge mm. innovation we're yeah. about the history of writing. Because before that moment, where she put her specific name on that collection, writing was totally anonymous. People would write something, whether it was a you know business transaction or a poem, and they would not put their name on it. And I think in large part because there was this idea that, you know, writing was not personal, private property. It was this kind of communal thing. And that Mm. makes sense in a culture that is primarily oral, Mm -hmm. that, you know, you pass down the story you heard from somebody else. Like, you don't own it yourself. And that was how writing functioned. It was sort of a loose representation of the oral stories that people were aware of. But then in Hedwana came on the scene and collected these together and then said, I'm the one who did it. Yeah. And uh, from then on, you still had some anonymous compositions, but you also had scribes who affixed their name to compositions as well. And that was kind of the origin of 
attributed writing, at mm. least as far as extant writing goes. Do you think it was a, did, I mean, it seems like she might have had a propagandistic motive to say, uh, I am coming from Sargon as his ambassador, so to speak. I am an Edwana. You you should know who I am. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing these uh, hymns to these temples for you. Do you think that's yeah. what it was? Or do you think it was uh, individual pride or or what was behind her motive there? I think it's kind of, but I, I definitely think there's a propagandistic element that we can never um, reduce or eliminate. You know, I think that was definitely the prime motivator in mm -hmm. that. But, um, you know, she was one of, of, you know, small amount of people who apparently was literate in the first place. And then an even smaller group of women who were, who were literate. And so it probably was an act of personal pride in respect to, put her name on it as yeah, well. Right. And in power too, you know. Yeah. And but the scribes who followed uh maybe were just following her example of this is what you do when you write something down, you you attribute it to yourself. I mean, the sounds like the scribes who came later weren't necessarily offspring of powerful rulers or anything like that, but it just became kind of a convention after that. Yeah, it could be most most people who were literate were very upper class people mm. or they were the you know the the, the servant class for the upper class who right. then became the sort official of the petty sort, yeah yeah so no one was really in poverty being able to to write and and read right so it definitely was a prestige act yeah so do we get a sense of who she is from this i mean to to say that she's the first person ever to attach uh, his or her name to a poetic composition, uh, does it does it mean we start to to get a glimpse of the poet in the verses themselves, or would you say that this it's anomalous that the name is there, but otherwise it could be what we see in unattributed writings from the time period? Yeah, I think that um, as far as the temple hymns go, we don't see a window on her personally, apart from her kind of aiding and abetting her father in mollifying the people that he conquered. Mm -hmm. And so we, we, we do see that, that she's um, complicit in that and, and helping him in that. Um, and who knows, maybe she had good intentions to say, man, he's, my dad's going to kill all these people if they rise up. And so maybe this is the best path forward to have peace you know there's that possibility too we had she also wrote three other poems that are extant today she probably wrote some other stuff too that we don't have evidence of but there are at least three other poems that she wrote those are of a religious nature they involve the goddess of sex and war inanna in one of those poems though we do get a glimpse on in hedwana's personal life because apparently there was a person who rose up against her and tried to depose her from her place as the priestess of mm -hmm. Ur. Mm -hmm. And apparently she, that person may have even been successful in driving her out of the city. And in Hedwana spent a period of time in exile, but then was restored back to her place. And she thanks Inanna for helping her through that trial and for vindicating her in the end mm. and stuff like that. Yeah, and that that sounds like one of those that's maybe addressed to a god, but is actually uh, uh, sort right. of a, a personal account or a <laughs> yeah, and maybe a warning: don't do this to me again because yeah. I, you know, I've I've come back before. 
and uh, the goddess of war is on my side. So right. <laughs> and how much of what we know about her comes from these poems, and how much comes from other sources and maybe later historical sources? There isn't a lot about her outside of her own documents. Mm, there mm-hmm. is, are a few kind of inscriptions that we have that sort of says, you know, like a like a dedication plaque to be like this was her temple that mm-hmm. she was of. Um, there are a few accounts of like her death, but nothing really huge. Um, I actually yeah. was thinking about writing a book about her. And I, you know, hopefully we'll do that at some point, like a, you know, biography of her, because I think she's such a important figure in world history that so few people know about. And I was talking with publishers about it and we were having to get on how we put it together because there just, there isn't a complete biography as mm. we understand it. Yeah. Um, There's enough. We have snippets uh, of her life. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like, I mean, one good thing is there's enough there to know that she was actually a real person and not like a Homer type figure where it, we're not even sure if it was one one person or many. Yeah, definitely. That's, I think, beyond dispute is that, that she did exist, that she was there, she held that position. You know, some, some scholars, isn't everything in academics, you know, I think academics are paid to debate. And, uh, you know, so people debate, did she really write this or did a later person attribute her name to it or did people, all those debates? But no one doubts she existed and stuff like that. Right. Before we move too far away from the idea of you writing a biography of this, I know you wrote a book about or you co-wrote a book about that was devoted to early women writers. Was she in that book or what was yeah. that book about? Yeah, definitely. So uh, my co-author and I, Sana Sfard, Sana is uh, connected to the University of Helsinki in Finland. And we meet, or we met at this um, kind of a research seminar in in Italy. And I had this, you know, idea pinging around the back of my head to collect together all of the writing attributed to women authors in Mesopotamia. Because approaching this is so tough. Because you know, you'll have something published in a weird, obscure journal. There are like fifteen copies of that in existence in the world. <laughs> You know, you have another thing published in a book that there are like 50 copies of the book around. It's just a total, you know, no one who appreciates literature or history can approach this stuff. And so I felt, why don't we gather it all together? So we have this kind of anthology of the very first women authors in the world. And I was talking with Sana about that idea and she loved it. And Sana is an expert on gender theory in the ancient Near East. And so we divided up the um, texts that we, we translated everything. Mm. This in the, and so she did sort of the, the later, like more Akkadian stuff. I did the more Sumerian, old Akkadian translations. And then she wrote about uh, gender theory and how it applies to these texts and what we can learn about the roles of women in society through them. Mm. And then I wrote about the history of, ancient Mesopotamia, the origin of writing and stuff like that. But Mm. it was a really cool project and something uh, I'm really proud of because it's actually a fairly big book. You know, it's not a pamphlet. And so most people look at women and think, oh, they just, they didn't do anything in the ancient world. But uh, we actually were able to fill up an entire anthology of their their writings. Wow. And what is impressive about Enidwana's writing in particular? How does it stand out if you had to to make the case for Enidwana, uh what would you say about her writing 
Well, I think she's right at the transition between administrative writing as, you know, these kind of archival um, transactions that are recorded down and then full-blown literature as we think of it. And she Mm -hmm. was at the Mm -hmm. ground floor of that transition. Yeah. And uh, she had this, you know, creative mind that was able to, uh, you know, edit stuff together. And, you know, we, we think about that, you know, boy, you know, making an anthology today is fairly easy with Google and stuff like this. But, you know, think about what the challenge of assembling 52 hymns was in the mm. ancient, you know, mm-hmm. these cities where these hymns likely were originated and stuff like that were, you know, hundreds of miles apart. And so she had to, you know, bring all of those together and put them into a cohesive collection and, you know, do all the work necessary. It was a huge undertaking. Right. Uh, and so, then her, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say our conception of a, a poet today might be, you know, the lone uh, individual who's inspired by the muses and, and John Keats, you know, yeah. writing over, yeah. writing uh, words that are going to be, a form of personal expression and a, a form of inspiration to others. And, and it sounds like uh, that that might not be the right way to think of a poet uh, of an Edwana's time, but that the endeavor and the accomplishment is significant nevertheless. Yeah. I think that when we look at ancient writing, particularly what we call like literature, uh, it really was a communal project. Mm. Even if a person like an Edwana could say, I'm the editor of this collection, you know, and, you know, she wrote at least three other poems, but the writing back then, the way that people would compose things is there would be set forms that the community used and was familiar with, and they would work within those forms. And so it wasn't just this sole origination of my own independent creativity. It was sort of using the tradition that was passed down to you and giving your flavor to it. Um, and, and again, she's right in that, in that um, shift between individual compositions or individual authorship and communal authorship. You know, and she's on the very ground floor of that, too, where mm. she's starting to, to more say, I'm going to put my special imprint on this piece, not just regurgitate what someone else has told me. I may use a form that people are familiar with, but I'm going to do my own thing with it. And it's going to be enough of my own thing where it's mine. It's not just the communities. Right. So, you know, I think that's an incredibly huge development and not something we should just take for granted. Yeah. Why do you think she isn't better known? Why is her name not one that that comes to mind when people think of ancient texts? Well, I I think there are probably several reasons. One of them is just the fact that these cuneiform documents have not been around very long in Mm. terms of sort of scholarly attention. You know, Mm -hmm. they were, most of them were discovered in the very earliest, like late 1700s. But really, most of them that we have today that are of any sort of interesting significance were from the 1800s and even into the 1900s. And so in Edwana's name, I think first came around maybe 1950s. Mm, is people right. started, you know, finding her stuff, and you know, and then deciphering the languages and stuff like that. So it's recent, you know. It's not just like 
the Greek, you know, classical corpus that's been around forever. Right. Um, there's that. I think there's also for so long, and even still today, most people who do cuneiform studies are white European men. Mm. You know, I think they have their own blinders typically of what they think is important and worthy of study. And most history that, that we kind of learn about is centered on either political history of different political dynasties and those shifts or military history, the big wars and conflicts that have happened in the world. And it's rare, I think, to mark history in terms of quality of life improvement, you mm, know, right. or humanistic uh, reflection and things like that. That's more relegated to like philosophy or those, you know, weird literature nerds, you know, <laughs> something right, like that. Right. Yeah, it's, um, the, it's the Jane Austen dilemma. I mean, if we left uh, the study of literature solely to historians, they would kind of minimize it by saying, well, she doesn't even mention Napoleon. How can, yep. how can this reflect yep. her time period at all? When sure. uh, literature fans have said, no, 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 there's, there's a lot here about society and about, about human beings and about life that you, you don't need the battles in order to gain something from what Jane Austen is giving us here. Yeah. And I think so too is, you know, we have our own set curricula, just like in the ancient world, they had lists of sort of writing that everybody had, scribal students had to learn. Mm. You know, in our schooling, we have a set curricula as well. And if you want to add someone into it, just the time constraints that are around it, you have to take someone out. And so if you want to add in Hedwana into the history curricula, who are you going to take out? And I think it's worthy to do that. And, you know, these are the same debates we, we have in literature as well of like, you know, we have a predominantly, you know, white Eurocentric literary canon. And so who do we take out to celebrate some of the wonderful indigenous or black authors and, you know, Asian authors, things like this? You know, these debates mm. kind of can run hot sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so for someone who's interested in Anadwana, would you recommend that they sit down and read her poetry? Or is it more something where reading about her is more inspiring than the actual verses themselves? Yeah, I would probably read about her first and mm -hmm. then encounter her poetry. Because it's hard coming from our culture to get what she was doing if we just read her words. Right. And it's easier if you kind of get an understanding of her background, her context, and then, you know, maybe have sort of an annotated guide to her poetry. There's a nice work. Oh my gosh. Um, it's, I think it's even called Inanna published by Penguin Canada. God, the authors sent me that book. Um, and I just forgot her name at the moment, which is terrible, but you, know, you can easily find that on Google. Mm -hmm. And it's a really nice book that has, you know, a nice treatment of Inhedwana in it as well. There are a few others. Some of the museums around the world will have discussions about Inhedwana and things like this. Um, people can pick up Sana and I's book if they want to as well. So, yeah. Well, I should say that whether the interest here is primarily historical or primarily a literature interest uh, for a podcast that calls itself the history of literature, I guess that really shouldn't matter. We, we, we win either way. So, sure. Charles Halted, thank you so much for joining us on the history of literature. Well, thanks so much for having me.
Okay, there we go. Wasn't that great? My thanks to Charles Halton for taking us back in time without totally losing us. He was a good guide, wasn't he? I'd like to have him back on the show. It's such a fascinating part of literary and cultural history. His book is called Women's Writing of Ancient Mesopotamia, an anthology of the earliest female authors. Co-authored with Sanas Vard of the University of Helsinki. Do check it out. We are a part of the Podglomerate Network, which you can find at the www.thepodglomerate.com and LitHub Radio. What else do we have? I'm Jack Wilson. How about that? Do we say that? Have we said that at all? <laughs> Probably said it too much. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Conglomerate, a sonic universe.